Welcome to the Periphery. I'm Alan Elrod. Uh, we've been on a little bit of a break, but today we are back uh, with Dr. Stephen L. Taylor doing something we're going to be doing uh, a lot of this year, which is sitting down and talking with some of the authors in our 50 Takes on Democracy series. Uh, as you may have noticed uh, at Pulaski, we are doing a project on subnational democracy. We've launched that as our first uh, big project, and we're going to be doing a number of different things along those lines, research, uh, uh, publications, etc. cetera. Uh, and the idea is to get at the quality of life below the national level, but not just the quality of, of civic life, the kind of cultivation of you know, the kind of political culture that sustains democracy and also, right, the institutions. So uh, Dr. Stephen L. Taylor is a professor of political science and the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Troy University in Alabama. His areas of research include comparative democratic institutions and elections. And his most recent book uh, that you can find is A Different Democracy, American Government in a 31-Country Perspective, which is available from Yale University Press. Uh, he also writes regularly at OutsideTheBeltway.com. Um, I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Taylor here and his piece on Alabama, which is is excellent, um, to kick off these conversations because uh, as an Arkansan uh, and also just as, as an observer of the South in general, uh, it probably, there couldn't be a better place to start than the South. Um, Stephen, your piece focuses especially on the issues of elections and representation. So uh, uh, you talk about competitiveness and representation issues. So I'm just going to let you go ahead and kick off by maybe giving listeners the the big broad sweeps, and then we can dig into some of the, the points uh, that you made. Thanks. Uh, I'm really happy to be here to discuss this today. So uh, my, my approach to the piece uh, and really my, my overall sort of observations about state politics uh, and national politics uh, in general is to kind of look at this question of what do we know about the electorate in terms of their actual uh, partisan makeup and then how well does the electoral system actually reflect that, right? So we we get at least a, a rough idea, uh, imperfect though it may be, but the best, the best measure we can get, right, is we can look at certain statewide elections, most specifically for president, for Senate, and for the governor, and get a pretty good idea about what the rough partisan breakdown of the state is. And so we look at Alabama and we see that the rough partisan breakdown, depending on which elections you look at, and, and you know, you can have an argument of whether it should be it's 60-40 Republican to Democrat, or if you want to get really uh, sort of conservative uh, and say it's 70-30, which I think is would be a bit of an exaggeration, uh, you, you find that we should have more Democratic elected officials in the state than we do. Um, now, you know, and I say that not as a as a sort of normative preference, but simply as an empirical reality, right? That if the electoral system reflected voter preference better and in a more proportional fashion, that that's what we would see, regardless of whether that's what one wants or doesn't want. Now, I would point out, right, as I do in the piece, that I think that when we look at Alabama democracy in, in a sort of generic sense, um, in the post-civil rights era, while we can certainly critique certain elements of, say, access to voter ID and what have you, especially in poorer parts of the state where access to, say, the, the driver's license office can be limited, the, the, the functionality is relatively decent, right? It's certainly an improvement over what it was previous. 
Um, and I think that the overall outcome of, our, of the elections in the state are democratically reflective in the sense that this is a deeply Republican state. But uh, as is the case in many other parts of the United States, the majority party is able to manipulate. Well, one, it's a natural outcome of the rules we use. And then the party is then further able through gerrymandering to manipulate the way districts are drawn. So if you look at the the the, the House delegation, there is only while there should be between two and three Democratic seats, there's only one. And, and, and we have a packed district that is the Democratic district that is not only encompassing um, uh, an area of the state that was traditionally black because of uh, its linkages to plantation farming back during the, the antebellum period. Um, and then also connecting that rural black population with urban black populations in Montgomery and in Birmingham. So you create this sort of mega democratic district. And then you look at the Republican districts or all the, the, the other, the others are all left to be Republican districts. Um Likewise, if you look at the state house and the state senate, you see a, a, a ratio that does not reflect the, the state. It skews toward the majority party. Um, likewise, uh, and I think another evidence of the problematic nature of these districts is that they're all highly non-competitive, right? None of these races are anywhere near competitive, and many of them are, in fact, um, uh basically uncontested. So, you know, uh, take District 7, which is the one that is the heavily Democratic district. Uh, basically, it was Representative Sewell running against a slate of other people who got less than 3% of the vote. And you can go down the list. I mean, I think the, the closest district in 20, I'm talking about the 2020, I didn't, I don't have the 2022 numbers at my disposal, I just realized. But um, you look at 2020, and, and the, the most competitive district, which is what I discussed in the piece, was District 1 at a 28.83% gap. That's not exactly competitive. So, you know, there there just isn't, and it, and it creates a downward pressure, I think, too, on party development so that the Democratic Party continually sort of atrophies. Uh, so if you do look at the 2020 campaign, uh, say for governor, the, the Democratic candidates were highly uh, inexperienced uh I don't mean poor quality in the democratic sense candidates. They just weren't going to attract votes. Uh, and, and especially when you know you're going to lose, it's hard to attract people to run. Um, but, you know, in 2018, with the more high quality candidate, the Democrats were able to poll 40%. But in 2022, with the lower quality candidates, you know, closer to 30%. So it's, there's just no, there's no incentive to even develop party competition because you know you're going to lose. And the and part of it is, again, I would point out that at the, at the government gubernatorial level, it's because the state is heavily Republican. And that's just true. And that's the purest kind of representative force we have. But again, the legislature, I think, should be more reflective of the overall population. Really, yeah, I appreciated the the angles you took, I think, especially because you know, I'm in Arkansas and uh we are really honestly even a little bit redder than Alabama, right? It's it's we had a high quality a candidate on the Democratic side in this last gubernatorial contest. Granted, he ran against a very high name recognition Republican, but still, you know, Democrats pulled around 35%. But Arkansas has four congressional delegates, and the center of the state has some pretty blue places, and it's really just gerrymandering that has created situation where Arkansas, which should probably have one, if you look at it, both in terms of the geography and in terms of 
the the voter breakdown right one democrat in in the house has not um <clears throat> but more broadly i like you know you get essentially two kind of problems that people who are talking about uh electoral reform get at right which is is one of them is this issue of of this institution itself right so the rules whether or not you know the gerrymandering the voter id laws etc um which i think anybody who's concerned about democracy would say well, we want these to en- encourage participation not discourage participation but then the broader issue is the electorate, right? Which is that um, one of the things we deal with is the idea that like there is, if you fix all the rules, every state is is actually sort of uh, highly competitive. And I think that's something that you demonstrate to be right not true, right? You make you very clearly make the point that you know Alabama is not actually a, a highly competitive environment between the two parties it is in it's just that it's not reflecting the total breakdown right because and i think that's really important because i think there are people in the united states the more casual observers or if you're kind of plugged into the to the partisan debate on this uh where that lack of competitiveness is um by itself a sign, right? That, 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 that right. the election system is broken. Whereas really what we're talking about is a bit of a, a sliding scale, right? We want it, we want it to be competitive in a way that reflects the realities on the ground in a given place. But there are places that may just never really be that competitive. Right. So I think that that's an important point. I think it is it is kind of, I don't know, it's mushy at, at best in the national debate. I don't I mean, I honestly, you know, as you pointed about my 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 background, my background is mostly in comparative politics. So I, I I think that it allows me to look at the United States a little more with I don't know less biased for or fresher eyes sometimes than sometimes folks that only look at the United States because when you just look at one country, your your definition of what's normal and what's possible, I think it's limited. Um, and I think I, I certainly um, uh, think that the American political press in particular is captured by this very frequently, that they only they compare it only to what they have seen in the U.S. and don't understand that a lot of the, the dynamics uh, that they observe are not quite uh, what they think they are. I mean, even some of this, this not to get off on uh, con- contemporary uh, national politics, but just watching even some of the coverage of this uh Fight over the speakership in the in the U.S. House this week. I, I don't think a lot of a lot of folks don't understand how coalitions are built or what parties do, but that's okay. But um, the or, or why our parties are weak and why this is even possible, right? But anyway, I, I, I digress. The um, the uh, I think that what you point to is not all. I guess I would say not all lack of competition is equal, right? I mean, some places are not competitive because they've been drawn in a way that that really limits competition. But the reality is there are places where the voters are overwhelmingly in favor of one party or the other. And that's that's okay. That's democracy. I guess, uh, well, I know that my main sort of, again, my, my, my from, a, from the perspective of democratic theory, and believing the if we start from the notion again that each voter is supposed to be co-equal in the, in the in the mix that that we should aspire to electoral rules that would unlock each individual voter's relevance right because right now you can um draw the lines uh, at least for legislative elections that 
clearly uh, dilutes uh, the significance of particular voters. So, so like you say about Arkansas, or whether we say about Alabama, we can say it about a variety of well, we can say it about practically all the states. And there, there are some examples where the ratios are relatively reasonable, but in most places they're not, um, because we allow geography to overween the significance of voters. Um, and and there, there are ways to fix this. There are all kinds of ways to fix this. But, um, you know, it's uh, the the debate in the United States is is not so much focused on on really un- different ways to run elections. It's usually on trying to tinker with the current system on the assumption that, right, if you if you just had a neutral body drawing the lines, that would solve the problem. I mean, what people don't fully accept or understand, in my view, is that there's no such thing as a set of neutral lines. Uh, those lines are always going to be biased in one degree or the other. The single-member districts are part of the problem. Now, to some degree, you can't fully escape it because if we're still going to use state, state elect senators, those are going to be single-member districts, although you could talk about more dramatic changes of that, but that's fantasy talk. Um, I mean, really, all this may be fantasy talk because it's very hard to get anyone to talk. Electoral reform, either people think you're talking voodoo or their eyes glaze over. It's... I will say, right, uh, you know, you mentioned our book, A Different Democracy, we, which we, we we noted in that book that one of the things that is interesting about American democracy is there really is a lack of debate about these issues. But I will say that in the last five-ish years, I've been encouraged to see at least more discussion of these issues. I, I don't know the debate's particularly sophisticated, but you do see high-level discussions about why the rules are producing what they produce rather than just assuming that the voters are broken or the parties are broken. It's it's more complicated than that, right? So um, I actually think your competitive uh, uh, angle on this is also really interesting in light of your uh, background as a comparativist, right? So I do want to dig into that. So, uh, you know, we know that part of the problem, right, in, in the United States is is even aside from sort of the whatever nefariousness of, of gerrymandering in some cases, is that American politics really is continuing to divide along these kinds of geographic lines, urban, rural, right, um, and, and shifts that frankly make it um, to where you don't really have to try that hard in some places to gerrymander. People are sorting themselves geographically. So I'm curious, um, as we have seen this conversation actually sort of emerge uh, internationally, right? There are other there are other sort of Western democracies where the urban rural split is occurring, right? Where these dynamics are emerging. I think it's actually because the goal of this, in some ways, when we talk about subnational democracy, is to bring right the way that people are living their lives, the way democratic institutions are functioning, the way representation works, the way democratic cultures operate at these very local levels into the conversation in the way that we traditionally talk about democracy at the national level. So I think this is actually a perfect opportunity to ask sort of what, if we were to try to ask, could be done, is being done or or uh, is, is maybe even not being done in the same ways uh, in other countries that are experiencing other sort of Western democracies where uh, you do have a situation where people are sorting themselves in more sort of geographically uh, restricted ways. Well, so yeah, I, I think 
I guess in, in, in a sort of way, we will experience a bit of a of a longer term natural experiment about this. Uh, I, I would argue that the countries that have more proportional electoral systems will be able to weather this at least theoretically better over time, because it will not it will allow representation and parties and individual politicians to uh, tap into various uh, representational groups in the society. Right in the U.S. Let me, let me say it this way. It's like in the U.S., I think a, our major, a major problem in our politics is that everything has to be binary, right? You, you really only have two choices. And it may be granted, as we say, in a competitive sense, wherever you, you live, you may really not even have that. But that, but I think fundamentally on the, on the national scale, uh, which then affects the, the, the states very directly, I think, because our politics are... are despite the local rhetoric, are quite nationalized, um, the parties in particular. Um, but I, I think that if you only have two choices, right, there, there's no there's no, there's no, no representational safety valve for me to go and, 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 and pick something slightly off the other two, right? I've got to double down on my, um, on my affiliation with those two parties. I don't really have any choice. And again, I think that the Speaker fight is a great example of this. That really, the the Democrats and Republicans have nowhere they can't. There's nowhere else to go. So you've got this internal fight for the Republicans because they can't vote for a Democrat. Um, the whole point of being a Republican is that that's who you're going to caucus with. That's who you're going to have leadership, you know, affiliation with. And and plus in the U.S. because every individual member of of government uh, that has a partisan uh, letter by their name is beholden to a primary electorate, not to anybody else. It, it narrows in a weird way, right? I, I well, I, I am I'm rambling at this point, but I, let me let me try to refocus myself. And I think that uh, the binary choice, combined with the fact that um, we select candidates through primaries, which we do in a way that is unique globally, nobody does it the way we do it. Um, creates a weird um, sort of rigidity at the at the electoral level, at the general election level, but it's controlled by a small slice of the electorate in a way that that allows the individual politician to to appeal to a small group rather than to a broader group. So it, it, I think it exacerbates the representation problem, right? So you can take a particular member of Congress uh, who will take the one that comes to uh, mind is... Um, well, I mean, Lauren Barber a good example, but Marjorie Taylor Greene's a good example. Um, the their district are going to the, the, the MTG's district is heavily Democratic, so let's, let's stick with that. Uh, Republican, excuse me. We'll stick with that one because it's a Southern state, and it's also sort of really is overwhelmingly the, drawn that way. She's going to get reelected because the Republicans in that district are almost so just going to vote Republican. That's what we do because you only have two choices. Um, so all that she has to do is win the primary. As long as she wins the primary, she's in the House. Because her district, like your state, I think is a 70-30 district. Off the top of my head, I could be mistaken, but it's pretty close. Um, so they're really, even even those elect. so it's a good illustration of how even the general election is not competitive so that all that matters is the primary, which most people don't pay attention to. Um, right, I was actually wanting to say, you know, uh, it's interesting because because once you start talking about primaries, right, and we've seen actually right Republicans even moving towards more closed primaries. Yes, 
the primary voting, right? We're talking about one of the challenges in your piece, right? Is participation, right? The primary electorate yes. is so small. That's true. Um, and, and yet uh, partisanship is high enough that whomever, right, that primary electorate selects is most likely to get, generally speaking, yes. lockstep support, right, of voters. But that's that's another issue, right? Of like, it, 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 that is an area where, you know, we were talking, chatting before this about how there's a sort of fantasy politics that yes. if if you got ideal voter turnout, you know, the better O'Rourke kind of phrase of Texas isn't a, a, a red state, it's a non-voting state, got carried over here in Arkansas. And I never really, you know, I want to see more Arkansans vote for the simple sake that it's sure. good for democracy, for people to vote, participate, but it never really made sense to me that, that non-voters in Arkansas would translate simply to just a, perp, a, a blue state. But I do actually think primaries are a situation where uh, the lack of voter participation really does matter because you're getting the most sort of diehard uh, yes. extremist kind of candidates. And you probably, that is a situation I assume, and this is where I'm curious about your insights on it. Mm-hmm. You probably wouldn't get quite those same types of candidates if you had broad public participation, even just broad participation among one party's voters in a closed primary and, and rather than what we see sometimes, which is like two and four percent of, of the no, total electorate. It can be quite abysmal. I I I'll, I'll uh you know I'll say this. So I over over the years um I have moved to a position where I think that while the irony is that primaries are theoretically more democratic because it allows broad participation with the selection of candidates, I think that it actually is detrimental to overall democratic representation and in, in, in the following sense i think that the the role that parties are one of the main roles parties are supposed to play right is the sort of shorthand for the group that that supports the things that i support right so if i have this set of policy preferences i would vote for this party if i have the other set i would vote for this set of blah 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 um and i think that that the american primary process, which is extremely porous in terms of the capacity of of office-seeking politicians to insert themselves into the political process, uh, is so porous that that, that it detracts from the rep the creation of third parties, right? So if I'm if I'm a libertarian leaning individual like say Rand Paul or his father Ron Paul, um if I run as a libertarian, I'm going to lose election every time. But if I if I win the Democrat, Republican primary in my state or district uh, with a relatively small slice of the electorate, then I'm a Republican uh, who is probably going to win election because my district or state is heavily Republican. Uh, and this this uh, this also applies to you know these what one might refer to as the more QAnon esque members of the GOP like Lauren Berbert, Boebert or or. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others we can we can name or a lot again these these rebels these you know quote unquote rebels in the house right now they can win their primaries because the 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 cost of entry is so low and then they capture a very valuable commodity which is the the label of a major party um so whether we're talking about the tea party movement in you know a, a decade ago or this more whatever you want to call this populist impulse in the Republican party now in other countries, if they were going to run for office, they would have to form their own parties. 
but they don't have to in the United States. They can just capture a slice uh, and then become embedded because incumbents get renominated unless they do something really outrageously stupid that makes their primary voters mad, and then they get reelected, and then we perpetuate. Now, you know, Boebert came close to losing, so there, there clearly is a breaking point even in a heavily Republican district. Um, but nonetheless, the the pressure, uh, the the, uh, the the pathway is is quite easy, right? You contrast that, say, with the UK, just by way of example, when a group of members of parliament would not vote with Boris Johnson on Brexit, he he was able to kick them out of the party, and they could no longer be conservatives. They couldn't run as conservatives, so their their political career was over with, um, unless they want to like go third party, which is can be very difficult because Britain has a similar system to ours although it's more doable there for various reasons. Um, so I, I think that the, the, I think the primary system is part of this whole conversation in a way that we often don't really acknowledge in the United States. Uh, we think of it as sort of this sort of sub-election, but it really is part of the structure. And it limits, it limits therefore, the capacity for voters to understand what the D means or what the R means and can transform the party rather quickly. Again, uh, to get macro, to get national, I mean, if if the Republican Party as an institution were picking candidates in 2016, they would not have picked Donald Trump. He was not, you know, he was not a mainline Republican. Um, in fact, there was a lot of disgruntlement until he had enough delegates to be nominated. Um, but that helped transform that party because his his the cost of entry was so low relatively speaking. Um, so I, I think it, that this then, then creates further problems when, as you say, the, you have non-competitive districts and then whoever won the nomination wins and they win with you know relatively small support. Well, I think it's interesting on this line, right, to talk a little bit about where there are some, some bright spots, uh, mm-hmm. right, to bring another A state into the equation, right, Alaska's ranked choice system, sort of saw the similar dynamic, right, of, of, of in, 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 in almost any other system, we would think uh, someone like, you know, Sarah Palin, right. you know, in, in, in a state like Arkansas or Alabama, probably would just would have been able to win that race, right? So, but she gets rejected partly right. to this ranked choice system, not entirely, right? There's other right. dynamics there, yeah. but, but there's no way to, there's, in other words, we you introduce a way to sort of fend off that sort of candidate, even in a general election, right? Because p- people have the ability to to say, "Well, you know, I don't. This is maybe maybe the maybe for partisan reasons or whatever else, the the Democrat isn't my first choice, but you know, Sarah mm-hmm. Palin is my last choice, and I really don't want to have to, you know, because I, that's that's another dynamic of this, right? Is people, right? Because people's partisan identities, they have these preferences right where they'll say well okay you know I, i'm never going to perhaps vote for you know if you're a republican democrat first but right. there might be situations where y- you would like to opt into voting mm-hmm. for someone else first and then right. you know, maybe the democrat is a second choice as a you know a backup uh right uh, and I, the dynamic played out similarly I'm I'm going to this because of your comparative background, right? Sure. But, uh, and I assume you have some thoughts on it, which is right. What we saw in uh, Australia earlier this year, right, which is part of the reason why Labor took power, right, is these these so-called teal sort of climate change focused independents, right, in the Australian cities, toppling sort of your 
you're more and we have a, we have a little bit less of this in the US right than we used to but toppling you're kind of more sort of um uh there the the sort of center right wealthy but sort of socially conscious constituencies uh that that the Australian Liberal Party, which is their central right party, right, still sort of held, right? But they basically managed to cut through that. And that's largely thanks to Australia having the the transferable vote. And so so I guess what this raises is 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 there any opt? I mean, obviously Alabama is its own kind of can of worms. And you and I both know the tradition in the South of of reforms tend to usually work in the direction of suppressing uh, expression rather than expanding it. But is there any kind of optimism for the possibility, right, of of being able to dabble a little at the state level in the ways that places like Alaska have with these systems that allow for for uh, it, it, for lack of a better phrase, I think, kind of releasing, letting a little steam off on the valve of of the two party system. So I mean, well, okay. So I, I have lots of thoughts about this, but um, <laughs> I. So I, I, I sort of I'll, I will sort of at least state, and we can come back to there or not because it's a complicated conversation. I mean, I, my if if I were if I were you know magical and could change the electoral system, I would opt for either um, some kind of open list proportional representation system where we vote lists, and then the party that gets the percentage of votes gets the percentage of seats. Or really, my ideal system probably is what they have in. Uh, Germany and in New Zealand, which is mixed member proportional, where you do vote for a member of your, you vote for a local district representative, but you also vote on a, on a, for what party you prefer and the distribution of seats in, in the legislature is, is, is linked to the national distribution of preference and parties. So you end up typically, so this is the, right. This is the classic, I think every single comparativist I know yes. does yes. <laughs> Germany. And yes, sure. Sort of we, all love, we all love that. So, um, but okay. So having said that, so I, so I, I will say my, my, my positive, uh, the positive thing that I will say about, um, about uh, Alaska's sort of top four uh, primary and uh, ranked choice uh, general election is that um, I am sort of to my point that I raised earlier, at least as an example of folks in the United States thinking about the way electoral rules can be different um, and um, and therefore helps further, I think, this conversation. <clears throat> the my, I, I'm not a super fan of it in the following sense, because I think that the, I think that, and you can compare it also to a degree to, it's not quite the same thing, because California's top two and a couple of the Pacific Northwest states have top two. In the primary, and then whoever wins the top two is in the in the general, regardless of what their vote totals are. Um, in Alaska is a little different, and I guess you know we've got some other ranked choice examples in a couple of places. But uh, I think that ranked choice voting is. Um, I don't know that we empirically solves ultimately solves the. It, there's an assumption that it creates a moderate outcome, and I don't know that it doesn't always actually do that. And it's often dependent upon the district in which it is in, right? I mean, and so the problem is, because I still think the core problem from a democratic representation and competitive uh, competitive's point of view is, again, the single member district is going to, it, by definition, whatever the vote voter distribution in that district is, 
is going to be is going to skew the outcome, right? So I think in Alaska, what we're seeing um, is I think at least two different dynamics converging with these new rules. I mean, one dynamic um, is that Sarah Palin, in particular, to be the, the, the sort of personally about the candidates themselves, because she did come in. Ultimately, um, she came in. I'm trying to remember. She came in second or third. I think she came. Did she come in second in the first round or third? I can't recall. I think she came in third. It doesn't matter. I think it was third, right? She performed pretty. Yeah, she came in third. So the, I think that Sarah Palin had burned some bridges in Alaska that made it very difficult for her to compete, and she miscalculated, and it helped but split that Republican vote in a way that that it otherwise might have uh, accrued to a Republican outcome. So I don't know how much we can judge with her as a candidate, but I think the other more important part is, um, <laughs> to use a political science term, Alaska's weird, right? Alaska is uh, is uh, it's a weird state in terms of trying to make these judgments in terms of parties. So because at least two examples come to mind, right? This is the state where Lisa Murkowski was able to win re-election as a write-in candidate. Uh, that's unusual, and then you have this whole dynamic. Uh, with the coalition uh, government in the state legislature that we just saw emerge, which I know has happened in a couple of other states as well. Um, and, and But it's especially, I think, Alaska is not, either it's, it's a it's a red state. It's not, I don't think, as deeply red as people think it is. Um, so, and it's also so small. I mean, the population, we're not talking about a lot of people here. It creates its own kind of dynamic. So I, I don't, I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitant to make a lot of, conclusions from that. And I think also that um, ranked choice voting in single seat districts, um, especially with, again, the porousness of our primary process, it in fact weakens parties further, which I think is actually ultimately a negative, right? Um, Because now if two or three people can be Republicans and two or three people can be Democrats, where's the incentive to form that third party that might actually change things in a way that people would understand Who's representing and why, right? I'm I'm still probably going to focus on my partisan ID. I just have multiple choices now, but I don't. It still doesn't create, I think, the clarity that's necessary to create better representation. So this last thing you're saying, I think, gives me a chance to shift uh, in a way, kind of downshift uh, from sure. the the academic conversation we're having to you know your your living in Alabama. Well, I mean, you know, the things you discuss in this piece, what do you think, in a way, the average, this affects the average Alabamians, Alabamian, is this the denonym? Alabamian, that's right, yeah. Alabamians, uh, um, political imagination, right? Like, Because right. I think when we talk about these things, it can sound um, very much like we're we're engaging in sort of just just a, 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 an accounting process, right? And that's true, right? We're counting votes. We're we're t- we're looking at numbers, but on a personal level, right? There there are real effects, right, to people feeling as if they they can or can't actually affect the outcomes right. in a given place. So so what do you experience? I think as the kind of um, maybe everyday Alabamian who's even not necessarily even just Democrat, perhaps even just those who aren't sort of died in the wool conservatives. Uh, there's right. their sort of sense of uh, political possibility where they live. Right. So I, I would, I would, I would, I mean, this is uh, in some ways an in- intuition uh, and maybe a hypothesis. And I certainly can't prove it. Um, but I, I, I firmly believe that the, 
the lack of competitiveness, which then results in a lack of representation or representativeness in in the system in Alabama, which I think is extrapolatable to the whole country, um, leads to an increased feeling of um, poor performance by government. I, I think that people... So I think what people think, I think in general, they think, well, we have elections, people were elected, the system kind of works, founding fathers, constitution's all great. Uh, and so whatever failings that take place are because politicians are corrupt or they lie or, or, or something along those lines. And I really think that what happens is um, people have vague ideas about really how government works anyway. They vote their party, then they then the incentives, because I think incentives are what's key in all this, right? What incentives does a system create? So, and I think that the incentives that these systems create are for politicians to gain office and do whatever it is to get reelected, which is often not necessarily engaging in policy performance, right? It it, it, it's, it may be performative, it may be other issues. I'm not saying that they don't care, but I think there are ev- there's evidence that in many cases that I'll put it this way. I don't know that we we have created a system that really rewards success as much as we just you know re- rewards maintaining the status quo. Um, and so it's hard for voters to really know that what they're voting for translates into outcomes. I, I think that's I think that's gen- generically a pathology of our our politics, both state state level and nationally, right? So that. In other words, if the outcomes are all going to be roughly the same, really, no matter what we do, then what's the incentive of the legislature to really change much of anything? And then I think if we're going to sort of also uh, shift it to sort of um, this linkage between national politics and state politics, I, I think that it's it, it helps provide a long-term issue in, in, in Alabama, uh, and I think it's a long-term issue in Southern politics, which is... Whatever works is because we did it good, and whatever doesn't work is because Washington screwed it up. And so, this, you know, I talk even at the beginning of the piece about some of the rhetoric from Governor Ivey in her reelection campaign in 2022. The I was struck uh, by the, although it wasn't surprising, right? The anti Washington rhetoric is always very evident in our elections. And then, really, so much of even not just Governor Ivey's uh, campaign, but her challengers, it's, it's, Really, the rhetoric is mostly about national politics. It's not about, you know, it's about things like the border, which, you know, will shock no one to know that the Mexican border has no touching on Alabama. Now, not that immigration isn't significant to the state. It is because there are, you know, um, migrant workers that come work in agriculture in the state. But, um, and in fact, when we attempted a couple years ago to make it more difficult to be an immigrant in Alabama, our agricultural sector suffered. So it's, you know, there are, there are connectivities without any doubt, but I mean, it is, there are, it's, it's all about the rhetoric is predominantly about leave Alabama alone. We're awesome. You stink. And whatever you do is damaging us when in fact, right. The reality is that um, we could use some federal money for highways and, 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 you know, things of, if you forget the more controversial issues like Medicare for all and all that jazz are, or, or Medicaid expansion, um, just highways. We could use more money for highways, but because back in the day um, when we had earmarks, we got more money for that stuff, right? Than we get now. And of course, we're 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 all right. We we as is Arkansas, and, and as is true, I think most Southern states, we are net 
importers of federal dollars, right? We bring more federal dollars in than we pay, but we don't talk like that because that would be unfortunate, I guess, to admit. I, I, hey, and I'm really glad that you hit so much in the piece and even just now on this anti-Washington rhetoric because so much of what we are trying to do, right, with the subnational project and with the 50 Take series is get at, yeah, obviously federal dollars are a huge part mm-hmm. of what government actually means, right? But there's also this this critical way in which a lot of people's day-to-day democratic and civic life is shaped significantly more by these institutions at the state and even the local level, right? Sheriff's oh, yeah. offices, county clerks, uh, local, local criminal justice systems, state departments, et cetera, right? And so that that kind of default to if 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 the way I'm experiencing government is bad, it's because Washington stinks. Also, just yeah. lets all these institutions off the hook in yes. a way like you're not actually talking about what's making you miserable, uh, because you're, you're the blame's being shifted. And I I, I love the immigration comment. Yeah, you know, I wrote a piece for the Arkansas Advocate making this same kind of thing along a broader argument about back in the summer about Sarah Huckabee Sanders' campaign, sort of saying well, she's talking about immigration a lot for someone who wants to be governor of a state that that doesn't have a border. Uh, and then also just doesn't like have a, a big problem. Right. I mean, you know, we're obviously the, it's not like, it's not like there's no people who are coming into Arkansas uh, who have entered the country uh, illegally that it's obviously that does happen, but it's, it's not, you know, the most pressing issue to the, to the state. Uh, but that nationalization, right. Of if you feel like the democracy you are living in is of a lesser quality than it used to be. And that's a whole separate conversation. But if you uh, feel that way, right? If you feel like you're living in a lower quality, that's Washington's fault. Not these places that are actually much more proximate to you. Not these places that are actually on a more day-to-day basis, right? Shaping uh, your life. Not these institutions you're actually interacting with. Right. The local places where you actually have to go and file papers or deal with people and the people you elect who who work with. No, if it's if you feel like democracy is bad, it's not their fault. Right. Even though in a lot of ways, right, it it it, it absolutely is. Right. That's right. No, there I think there's I mean, this is just a long-term uh political science observation, right? That people don't, one, they don't understand really what government does, and then they don't understand the differentiation between state, local, and federal government. Uh, and, and 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 another thing that I've I've come to a conclusion that I when I was a young man I thought that's great you know we vote for everything it's democratic but the reality is we don't know what we're voting for and I and I think in some ways it creates more cynicism and lack of connectivity it should you know, in theory right if I'm voting for I, I don't know if you do this in, in Arkansas but in Alabama we vote for county coroner so the coroner is an elected official which I find hilarious because I but you can have absolutely no um qualifications um in fact i was talking to someone in one of my, they made a criminal justice faculty we were talking about an example is of, it a partisan race in alabama is it a, yes is it a, yes <laughs> it's very important that we have strong conservative sure. values for how we assess oh, you know. <laughs> but like, there was a guy who was a, there was one county where everyone was being recorded as as having died of cardiac arrest because someone went to a seminar and found out well you're dead when your heart stops so well there you go um you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, yeah. So, but we vote for things. And, and I, I told my, would tell my students, look, I, 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 I've been a political junkie my entire life. I have a PhD in political science. I don't know 
what who I should vote for for some low level, you know, judicial position. I don't accept. Again, you default to probably you default to the uh, the party label, right? But what else do you have to go on? It's a signaling device. It's the only one that you have. Uh, another fascinating thing to watch in Alabama that I've watched, which you may have watched in Arkansas, depending on how long you've been there. Um, but you know, I'm originally from Texas. And then having lived here for going on 25 years now, I've, I've watched the the shift in these states from being solidly Democratic to being solidly Republican. So like when I first moved to Alabama, the state was at the state level was in, engaged in but had not completed the shift to Republican. Um, in fact, uh, that we had at least one more Democratic mayor after I'm uh, excuse mayor uh, governor after I moved here. And the legislature, I don't think fully went Republican until well into the 20 to 2000s. But um, I forget the exact year that both chambers went Republican. But you can look at the down ballots. It's all this sort of trickle down, right? It starts at president over time, and then it trickles down to the Senate and governor. And then, so when I first moved here at the local level, all of the offices that were uncontested were Democrats. And now all the uncontested races are Republicans because that's yeah you'll that's, you'll you'll love this this may blow you away uh, when uh, the outgoing governor Asa Hutchison the governor before yeah. him yeah. Uh, which obviously because he served two terms you have to go kind of back Mike yeah. Beebe is a Democrat but yeah. Mike Beebe won his reelection uh, in 2010 mm-hmm. winning a majority in every single Arkansas county yeah. He he did not he, he every if you look at the map every single county was blue. Yeah 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 yeah. And yeah, that's, that's I mean that's astounding. And then that it wasn't is. even the case in the first election, right? So like these are you know, but and and obviously there's all sorts of things we can talk about about like sort of some of that shift being a bit of a mirage, right? Some of these voters always sure. having it, you know. But but you know some of these voters never the voters didn't really change. You know they just caught up with national trends, et cetera. But but. but it's still it, it it blows my wife is also from Texas and it, it it blew her mind though when I said like yeah you know 12 years ago we had a statewide election and every statewide official was a Democrat and not only that but the person who won the governorship on re-election won every county <laughs> and that's astounding you know and she's always just like how is this possible and you know then we kind of obviously get into the the, the way oh, no. it's changed or or not actually changed in, in the way it's just mirrored other things but but it, yeah no it's true and i mean i'm from uh uh you know my my very childhood days that i can't quite remember right was were the were the bill clinton years right mm-hmm. uh so so obviously arkansas has those yeah. in living memory for many people right no that that's exactly right so i mean i i i wrote a couple of pieces for the for the blog that you mentioned outside the beltway i don't know over, over time i've written a couple of pieces trying to explain the shift right because people don't it, it gets lost that the reason and this is it also relates to what i said earlier about uh the american political press just seem to only understand and focus on what they think they understand about american history but it's like prior prior to the republican revolution 94 you can't look at the party system in the House and say it's the same as the party system now, right? Because that was the Democrats from you know the new deal, the New Deal era Democrats uh, for multiple decades are this coalition, broad coalition that includes all these Southern Republicans, the Southern conservatives who are all Democrats, all of them, right? You know Richard Shelby, who just retired this week from the U.S. Senate, uh, was originally elected in the '80s as a Democrat, and then you know. 
had a press conference and changed parties after, you know, when it became more convenient to be Republican in this state. Um, and you can watch and you look at different, you're right, because different states are interesting because it doesn't all filter the same. Um, it, it, some of them take longer than others. And some of these changes really don't take place until around 2010 uh, to where the, 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 the entire um, trifecta, right, of governor and two chambers of the House and Senate are all Republican. Uh, in the in the U.S. Senate seat, so you you can you can sort of see it though it, it's quite fascinating, and, and I don't know that we fully understand that that what we're experiencing right now, and it's partially because, or significantly because of the shift in the South, right? That what we're experiencing at the national level is the consequences of our our governing institutions with a rigid two party system, uh, and and it doesn't work the way we thought it would work i think you know you can yeah uh, and, and also i think because though to bring it back to the primary thing because the parties can change without changing if you know what i mean so you can you can be the parties can evolve without this kind of competitive pressure that could ca- should cause evolution right evolution in party system should come about because one group says i can't stay in your group anymore because we disagree right so i break off and then we have a we have a different kind of fight there's no, there's no need to break off, right? You can stay within the, I can stay, you know, it's kind of like, because uh, uh, these two brands, right? There's the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Cinematic Universe, and I can just stay. If my, if my crappy, if I could make a movie, right? I can make a terrible superhero movie and just call it a Marvel movie. I wouldn't do that, but Marvel would sue me for doing that, right? But that's not the way it works in our parties. I can, I can claim this popular label without ever having proven anything about my, my fidelity or connectivity to the party. Well, this is something that comes up for me all the time now when I talk and think about the South in particular. And frankly, I imagine will come up in every one of these sort of 50 takes conversations with someone who is either writing about a Southern state or hails or, or has hailed at some point from a Southern state that I, that I think hits on what you're talking about, which is, we saw this shift, but in reality, when we're again, we're talking about the local level. Yeah. Something that I think is true down here is a certain amount of democratic political culture just never took root. Even right. when it was the other way, when it was the Democratic Party. That's right. The South is a place where local officials have tended to rule like sort of petty lords. Yes. Uh, and it was true when it was the Democratic Party, and the labels have shifted. But a lot of the actual sort of sinews of political power have have not really changed at all. And a lot of the way that people expect local political power to operate hasn't really changed, right? People's expectations haven't shifted all that much, particularly right in the rural South. That's right. Oh, that's right. But you're you're absolutely correct, right? Uh, You know, you... You observe the political functioning of um, a given small town or rural county, and it's not that different now than it was 25 years ago. It's just the labels have shifted, right? Because again, if I was an aspiring politician in Pike County, which is where Choi University is located, and I was an aspiring politician in certainly in 1988, but maybe even 1998, I would might have been. I definitely would have been a Democrat. Eighty-eight. I could be as conservative as the day is long. I could be a deacon at the First Baptist Church, 
and I could, you know, whatever you want to pick, but I'm going to be a Democrat in 88. 98, if I'm a rebel who thinks I can exploit some changing circumstances, I'm, I'm forward thinking, I might shift to R at that point, but I may still be a D at that point. By 2008, I'm going to be an R, and by 18, forget it, Ds are like, forget it, there must be communists. Um, so it, it, it is, but it's the same people, it's the same group probably of, 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 of local elites who are able to access political power and it doesn't change the way things are governed very much. So it isn't, it doesn't, you don't, you don't have sort of to the overall point of this conversation, right? You don't have the, the dynamic forces that democracy is supposed to create, which is com- competition over policy proposals and whoever is able to perform is able should therefore win more votes. You don't see it at all at the local level for the most part, and even at the state level, because again, I think partially because of political culture broadly defined or partisan affiliation, but also because again, the rules don't allow for you to to compete. It just doesn't. It's um, because of the distribution of uh, just the way the votes are, the voters are distributed. Um, Absolutely. And, I had a- and we've talked a bit about the institutional reforms that might facilitate that competition. But I'm also curious how you think about just the culture of competition, right? Because I think that matters down here, right? I think the South has just never been a place outside of a few little pockets of intense political competition. And there are a couple Southern states that have been a little more competitive than the others, right? But in most places, like you said, both at the state and the local level, it's typically been uh, not that competitive. One party rule has always been the way we did things. That's, right. That's right. And that doesn't, that right, we've talked a lot, I think, about the, the uh, structural reforms. The problems with, say, first past the post, the problems with single member districts. But there's also, I think, a broader cultural problem presented because people down here just kind of like that's just the norm you just sort of get used to it and obviously that can have really deleterious effects on people's uh, sense of civic life and value and participation absolutely so i mean the um i'm trying there's so many places to go i'm trying to think where to start i mean part of it i mean unfortunately i think a lot of the Things that come to mind, which I've already mentioned some of, are are almost fantasies in the sense that it's I don't know that we could ever achieve them. Um, I think that realistically, um, so the, the the kinds of what 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 are like doable reforms that might make a difference? Um, I think that one which is not state level but would affect states is I, I think that. We need to expand the size of the U.S. House of Representatives. It is too small for the population, right? Um, we haven't expanded the size, which is just shocking to me still. It's been over 100 years since we changed the size of the House. We had like 92 million people in the United States when we set this House at 435. And now we have 330-ish. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. That would That would help free up some of the problem it would it would dilute the problems of single member districts to a degree when i tell my students by the way about the house size i always put it in a comparative context i talk about like you know uh the over 600 members of 
the, the UK parliament or the size of the French National Assembly, or even while it is technically smaller than the American House, the size of the Australian House of Representatives relative to Australia's population. And as soon as I usually inform them, oh, here are all these countries with, with significantly smaller populations that have much higher proportions of, of representation seats to people, it usually stuns them. Yes. No, it, there, there's so many, st- <laughs> there are lots of things that are stunning. So I, I think that, that that would help. And it is something that is of the list of possible reforms, the more dual because it's doable by statute. But of, of course, you still have to overcome the uh, the perception of whether it might help one part or the other. I mean, really, it theoretically would help Democrats more because there are slightly more Democrats in the U.S. than there are Republicans. So that would be that sort of barrier. Oh, it doesn't have to stay that way, right? And then the other part is, I, I do believe also, right, that, th- and this is kind of the irony, that if we had more competitive politics, the two parties would have to adapt better, including the Republicans. But right now, they're afraid of adaptation, in my in my view, and therefore they don't want any reason to have to adapt. So they're, they're afraid. They're afraid that if, if there were more competition, they would lose. I think that if there was more competition they would learn to compete, right? To again, uh, tap into Southern culture. It's like, you know, a lot of our elections are too much like college football where the SEC is playing some division two school and you know what the outcome is going to be, right? We want, we, we, we need a, a way in which to encourage more competitiveness, you know? Um, anyway, so I, I think the house size would be a big deal. Um, again, in my fantasies, I would want some kind of at least modest proportional representation for house elections. But that would that's a, that's also doable by, via statute, in my view. But it, it would be convincing people of doing that would be very difficult. Now, I, I certainly would prefer there to be um, if we have to stick with what we have, and this is not a great fix. I would at least like to see a more neutral way of drawing uh, district boundaries that would that would with a, with a, an eye toward them being more proportional to the overall states. Um, partisan breakdown, but you can't even guarantee that over time, right? I mean, that that's that's fraught, but it would be an improvement. I mean, I really would, I think that we, the, we would, again, I don't, I don't see convincing people of this because it sounds like you're asking for a, a lack of democracy. I would, I would prefer that we started to phase out primaries, but that's a, that's a long uh, road to hoe uh, because I think that primaries really do ironically make competition less viable because there's no reason to form any kind of third party. I think when you look at even countries like the UK or India or Canada that have single seat districts with plurality winners, you have multiple parties because there's an incentive because of regional regionalization issues, but also just because of competition issues to form third parties. We have no no such incentive at all. Um, and and you know anyway, so those are things that I would like to see, but I, I I'm I'm not super optimistic about it. Um, I can explore more fantastical possibilities, but I mean that, that those are things that come to mind immediately. No, uh, well, this is honestly this has been a really good conversation, and I know also that you have a, a heart out here at, at eleven. Uh, so, uh, uh, I would say that one thing I do want to do before you go is, is a kind of tradition um, uh, on the podcast, even though it's it's been a bit since we've recorded an episode, uh, which is. Uh, I like to ask people since since we try to focus at Pulaski, all these places sort of away from from main centers is is if you had a place, uh, and it could be you know 
uh, it can be a restaurant. It could be a, a cool uh, historical site. It could be a movie theater you love. It could be a, a hiking trail, whatever it is. Uh, in your neck of the woods, that yes. is maybe a little bit, uh, on, on, I don't know about unknown, but you know, if somebody was coming through and you were like, you got to check it out. What would you suggest? Okay. So, so two places come to mind. Um, one Alabama, I will say Alabama is a beautiful state and it's not a state that people necessarily go out of the way to come see, but it, it's a great place to come visit. Um, it, there's a lot of natural beauty. So, uh, one place that I would recommend is uh, Mount Chiha state park, which is more in the north uh, eastern part of the state, it's the highest point in the state. It's also part of the Talladega National Forest. Beautiful, especially if you're ever around during uh, fall colors. Great place to go. And if you're in the Montgomery area, uh, I would highly, highly, highly recommend um, the uh, National uh, Monument for uh, Peace and Reconciliation, which is a relatively new monument by the. Um, um, I'm blanking on the name, the National Justice Initiative, but I think that's that may not be quite right. But it's it's a, it's a monument to lynching, um, and it is a sobering. It's one of the most impressive. It's a very large um, uh, installation in downtown Montgomery, uh, which is uh, it's very impressive and very sobering, and a, and, a, and a stark reminder of of our of our political past in this part of the of the country, although all, all over the country, unfortunately. But uh, I would very much recommend that location. So those are those are two. Uh, two recommendations. Excellent. Uh, well, Dr. Stephen L. Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Uh, uh, listeners, you can uh, go and read, if you want, uh, his piece for our 50 Take series, which is Alabama, Lack of Competition and Election Skepticism Down South. Uh, also check out his book, which we referenced earlier uh, in the in the episode and is available from Yale University Press. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Taylor. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for everyone for listening, and we will see you next time. The Periphery is a production of the Pulaski Institution. I've been your host, Alan Elrod. Our music was written, recorded, and produced by Brandon Ragsdale and Cody Smith. Thank you for coming, and please join us next time.